Gimlet. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Back in 2016, when Donald Trump unexpectedly won the presidential election, he instantly became the biggest news story in the country, if not the world. And amid the Washington Post's and New York Times and CNN's who are covering the Trump presidency, an unexpected newcomer to the political media scene was attracting a lot of attention. In a sense, Teen Vogue has seized the moment. A publication you never would have associated with politics until now. Teen Vogue recently made a bold switch and it got political. On issues ranging from immigration, the Muslim ban, and climate change, even taking on President Trump. Not only was Teen Vogue covering politics, but they were covering it well and differently and on their own terms. On Teen Vogue's pages, you could find instructions on applying glitter nail polish right next to an article about Mike Pence's record on reproductive rights. And all this led people to wonder, what is going on at Teen Vogue? A big part of the answer, Elaine Welteroth. Elaine Welteroth is getting a lot of the credit for Teen Vogue's success as the magazine's youngest and first ever black editor-in-chief. Finish this sentence for me. Teen Vogue is a movement. Elaine Welteroth is my guest on today's show. And in our conversation, we talked a lot about the struggles of transforming a magazine into a movement, while all around you, magazines are struggling to stay afloat. Elaine told me that from the time she was young, it felt like media was in her blood. As a kid, she made these full magazine-style photo collages featuring all her friends. She loved it, dreamed of one day doing it as a career. But most of the people she saw in magazines didn't look like her. Most of them were white. And so she didn't really have a template for how she could become the media mogul she wanted to be. And then, when she was about to graduate from college, an article in Ebony Magazine caught Elaine's eye. It was written by a woman named Harriet Cole, who at the time was creative director at Ebony. And I saw her bio, and it read literally like, it read like my future career blueprint. Here was a woman who had figured out a way to start her career in magazine journalism, and she was a Black woman, and doing it big in New York City, and she was able to kind of carve out her own lane in the media space that was sort of at the intersection of uh, Black culture, style and spirituality. And I was just like, this is amazing. She's basically like a more accessible Oprah. I need to know her. Right. She's the one that I want to be. She's the one. She's the one I want to be. I have to find her. And so I stalked her. How'd you, how'd you stalk her? What'd you do? Okay. So I snail mailed her um, and followed up with her assistant frequently. Mm -hmm. I called I emailed, and I even offered to fly to New York to bring her coffee, Mm -hmm. to which they were like, please don't. I will (laughs) call the security guards on you if you fly here. And um, But I was just very persistent. Uh I was relentless in the pursuit of connecting with Harriet. You know what's funny, just as you were saying that, is that like the beginning of any super successful career story and any super successful stalker horror story. They start (laughs) the same way. That's so true. (laughs) I sound really creepy. I want to be you. Exactly. And like you either like work really hard and then learn for that person, become that person, or you like lock them away in a closet and pretend to be them. Right. Single white female, only black. (laughs) Um, Exactly. Um, You know, eventually... Uh, I, I got the green light, and uh-huh. um, I think her assistant was just tired of hearing me call, so she was just like, well, let's just get this girl out of our hair. 
So it was days before I was graduating from college when we finally had this fateful phone call. And at the end of our conversation, our riveting conversation, I said, if there's ever an opportunity to work with you, just please keep me in mind. But if I never hear from you again, know that you've already changed my life. Mm -hmm. So we hang up. I move on. I graduate. Step one. (laughs) Step one. (laughs) And one day, one ordinary day, Harriet calls me back on my cell phone. This is five months after our fateful phone call where I thought I would never hear from her again. And I saw it ringing. I thought it was a butt dial. Uh And I pick up and it's actually Harriet. And she says to me that she remembered me and she had a shoot in California coming up in the next three days. And she was wondering if I was available to meet her down in Malibu on set. And she asked me if I would assist her for the day. So I just say yes. Mm -hmm. I roll up on set. And it turns out that it's a cover shoot with Serena Williams. She did not say cover. She Mm -hmm. did not say Serena Williams. So I'm like, this is next level. I am the new black Lauren Conrad and I'm living my dream here. This is amazing. And so that day, that is the first time in my life that I have ever felt truly alive. Like, I just knew exactly what to do and say without being directed. Harriet even let me weigh in on what Serena would wear which is unheard of, right. uh, truly unheard of for an intern. And then at the end of the day, Harriet offered me the job in New York to work under her on All Things Fashion Beauty cover, first as an intern for $10 an hour, uh-huh. and then it could potentially turn into a full-time salaried position as her assistant. You know, they say um, it's always a little bit of a risky thing to meet your idols. Yes. And work closely with them. Yes. How'd that go? You know, I have to say Harriet lived up to who I thought she would be to this day. She is still a mentor to me. I will say, though, the vision I had in my mind of what it would be like to work at a magazine definitely was uh, more glamorous than what reality had in store for me. (laughs) So on my first day at Ebony, I remember walking in and like looking for the big sign, like the Vogue sign that I'd seen on Devil Wears Prada or like on Sex in the City. And I was like, this is definitely not Sex in the City. Yes. The the media industry on TV is like way more glamorous. Way, (laughs) way more glam. And I got in the office and it was just like dingy and old and you know, like, for example, when, when I was told to uh, go clean in the beauty closet, I opened the door to the storage closet and saw all of these boxes and broken bags up to my knees that were filled with, like, chemical relaxers. And they were just spilling out all over the floor next to, like, manila folders that were spilling out all over the floor. It was just... I was like, this is not the dream I had in my mind of what a fashion and beauty closet looks like at right. a major magazine. And right. like, and so I, I, I had a rude awakening. I thought, what am I doing here? Here I am on this island over here, this Black-owned publication that is floundering. Um, so it felt scary. Yeah. When did it stop feeling scary? Well, two weeks into the job, we were on set shooting Michelle Obama. And it was her first U.S. cover. And it was so exciting to be a part of that. Uh, My job was to take care of her friends. She brought eight of her girlfriends from Chicago to set. And I was the one who was just meant to keep them company. And from that to the election of President Barack Obama, our first Black president, to be at a Black magazine during that time was absolutely incredible. 
And um, we shot Prince. We shot Michael Jackson. We shot Tyra Banks. I mean, all of these Black icons, I was able to help elevate. And I learned how to celebrate Black culture. I learned how to work with fewer resources and to make magic out of nothing, out of dust. And, you know, we didn't have a social media presence at all. So I started their Twitter. Uh, They didn't have a blog. So I started a blog called Ebony on the Scene. We didn't get invites to Fashion Week. So I used that same persistence that got me into Ebony to get us on those lists. So Uh I went to Fashion Week. Like, I just really dug into the opportunity at hand to learn. Elaine worked at Ebony for a few years and learned as much as she could from her mentor, Harriet. But then Harriet lost her job. And Elaine faced the prospect of an Ebony magazine without her mentor. Elaine spent the next year trying to land a job at a different magazine and finally got hired at Glamour. Glamour was part of Condé Nast, one of the most famous magazine publishing companies in the world, home to Vogue, GQ, The New Yorker, and it felt like a big step up. But also, Elaine says, it presented a challenge. How to go from a publication where the audience and staff are mostly black to a publication where the audience and staff are mostly white. Very few people start in Black media and are successfully able to cross over into mainstream media and climb the ranks. Mm -hmm. So I remember going on these interviews and slicking my big curly hair down into a low tight bun because I didn't want my hair to be distracting. Um, For generations, we have all been taught subliminally and sometimes overtly that natural curly Afrocentric hair is unprofessional. It is unkempt. And so... I, as a survival tactic, sort of, I just slicked it all back. Um, I remember just trying to wear the most preppy outfit that I could, khakis, and just really wanting to, uh, I don't know if it's as conscious as like masking your culture, but just really wanting to be as palatable as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, to the detriment of my own self-expression, what I recognized coming into Kane Nas was this urge to assimilate, Um, this feeling like I needed to kind of code switch to fit in and Mm -hmm. play by a different set of rules. So I had to learn these rules very quickly. And that's absolutely the reality for a lot of Black women in white corporate America. And I did not want to be known as the token Black editor. So therefore, I would not necessarily lean into my Blackness in terms of the stories I would pitch. Um, I was really just trying to fit in. I was trying to be respected. I was trying to gain credibility. And, um, you know, I had to learn how to write about beauty for everyone, um, predominantly white women. So I wrote about things like, sunless tanner and, you know, volumizer and, you know, products that I would never need in my lifetime. But they were important to our readers. So I studied those markets. I knew the products. I could tell you how to use a tanner any day, any, you know, anywhere. And what I recognized is the white beauty editors that I worked with were not expected to educate themselves on Black beauty, for instance, or any other marginalized group. They were experts in beauty for white women mm-hmm. only. And so it was it was complicated because it, it made me feel like I had to be the solo expert on black beauty. How many how many other black people were there at Glamour? 
Um, so when I started at Glamour, there was one other black woman on the editorial side that I can think of. Her name was Rajni Jacques, and uh, we look nothing alike. She is Haitian, dark skin, straight hair, mm-hmm. tomboy style, sort of reserved. I'm the exact opposite. And we would have these meetings where we would all be at the wall. They're called wall meetings where you're looking at the whole magazine and uh, you'd just be sort of called on when they got on your page. And I can't tell you how many times they looked at me and said Rajni and then looked at Rajni and said Elaine. And it was just like, you know, I'm, I am trying to fit in here, but I'm not trying to disappear. After the break, Elaine stops disappearing at Condé Nast and finds herself squarely in the national spotlight. That's coming up. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with magazine editor Elaine Welteroth. When Elaine made the leap from ebony to glamour, she felt this pressure to fit in. But the more articles she wrote geared towards a white audience, the hungrier she started to feel for other kinds of stories. Stories she herself would be more interested in reading. Stories written for a broader audience. So when Elaine finally landed a bigger job at Condé Nast as beauty and health director at Teen Vogue, she saw an opportunity to break out of the Condé Nast mold a bit more and started expressing herself more fully around the office. I found myself showing up to work with, like, huge hair. Just, like, my hair would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I feel like it was an extension of this expansion that was happening in other ways in my identity. Right. And so you, you continue to rise through the ranks at Teen Vogue. As you're sort of like coming into your own, as you're starting to take on more and more leadership within that magazine, what's one of the first things that stands out mm-hmm. as like, I'm doing something different? Yeah. There is an issue that stands out in my mind. It is the February 2016 issue of Teen Vogue. I was given the opportunity to be the editor on that cover story. And So I got the blessing of the founding editor-in-chief, Amy Astley, who hired me. And I just said, you know, is it okay if we do this meeting where we can kind of just throw out the formulas and rethink how we want to come at the work? And so I remember at that meeting, I was like, who's bored? Just raise your hand. And and we kind of like, we're like, I am. I I was like, I am. I'm bored with how we're doing things. Like, I can't see another, like, rich, blonde fashion blogger in this magazine. I just am over it. Can we push ourselves a little bit harder? You know, can we go a little deeper? And so the result of that um, became this cover story with Amanda Stenberg about what it means to be a Black girl in America today. And by the way, Amanda Stenberg, I just have um, to say, <laughs> yes. it, at the time was a very unlikely cover star because she didn't have a big blockbuster film at the time. Mm -hmm. Her last film was Hunger Games when she was a little girl and she played Rue. Mm -hmm. Since then, she had like blown up the internet with this enlightening, powerful Tumblr post called Don't Cash Crop My Cornrows, where she breaks down what cultural appropriation is. Mm -hmm. And it went viral. And she just sort of overnight became sort of a thought leader for her generation. Mm -hmm. And She became, in my eyes, the kind of girl that I wanted Teen Vogue to represent and to speak to and to celebrate. And so, you know, we all agreed to put her on the cover, even though it was an unconventional pick. And then I remember bringing Angela Davis references into the creative meeting around what the visuals should be for the cover. I'm thinking big afro, like, you know, let's get inspired from that sort of Black Panther Mm -hmm. kind of visual kind of aesthetic. And the team really loved it. 
And then we had this conversation about who would do hair. So typically in media, in magazines in particular, in the magazine industry, there is a white male photographer. That white male photographer usually has a big say over the hair and the makeup team. And so I saw this problem because here we are celebrating Amanda Stenberg on the cover of Teen Vogue in an Angela Davis-inspired afro and calling her a change maker for her cultural appropriation video. And yet we have essentially an all-white team behind the camera and we have a white hairstylist who's going to do that afro. That didn't sit well for me. This is one time that I really remember having, like, feeling a sense of responsibility and really taking that charge to say, I think we need a Black hairstylist here, and I think we should look at these people. And so the white, you know, hairstylist that we uh, originally were looking at was replaced by this Black woman. And then it was just this amazing moment when we were on set, and I saw her, and including my afro, there was like four afros on set, (laughs) And it was ju- it, it was this moment that just made me cry. I was like, if this bombs, I don't even care because <laughs> it is going to mean something to someone. And mm-hmm. then that issue got so much buzz on social media. So many black girls wrote in about how much that meant to them. And it just was this affirming moment in my career where I was like, this is why I'm here. Just a few months after that cover shoot, Elaine got called into the office of Anna Wintour, the legendary editor of Vogue. At that meeting, Anna offered Elaine a promotion to editor at Teen Vogue. She became the youngest editor in Condé Nast history and the first black editor at Teen Vogue. It was a dream job for Elaine and also an opportunity. I wanted to create a magazine at Teen Vogue where any reader could pick it up and find themselves or find someone they could see themselves in on the masthead. Um, Because I knew what it was like growing up loving magazines and not seeing anyone who reflected me. And so this sort of pain point became part of my purpose as an editor when I finally did get the seat at the table that I had been striving for for so long. But Anna Wintour had also given Elaine a mandate, turn the business of Teen Vogue around. This was in 2016, remember, a time when magazine sales were plummeting and Teen Vogue was no different. In the months leading up to Elaine's appointment, print sales of the magazine had plunged by nearly 50%. Coming up after the break, how Elaine Welteroth and Teen Vogue did turn things around with a little help from an unlikely source. The Teen Vogue Trump bump that's coming up. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Elaine Welteroth. Elaine made headlines when she was appointed to be the editor of Teen Vogue. She began running the magazine alongside the digital editorial director and the creative director. But the three of them had taken the helm of a publication in crisis. Sales were declining, and on November 7th, 2016, Condé Nast announced that Teen Vogue would be reduced to four issues a year. Then, the very next day, the election happened. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, We can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. We cannot underestimate the impact of the 2016 presidential election on the psyche of American people and specifically young people who never had the chance to vote in that election and yet were going to be directly impacted by these policies Mm -hmm. and by this administration. So there was this feeling of wanting to have a voice. Um, 
as it relates to politics. To that point, young people had been really pushed aside in political conversation. So it gave us an opportunity to to elevate them and to galvanize them. Yeah. And one of the most famous examples of your work here became um, an article written by Lauren Duca yeah. that you ran, Teen Vogue. Yep. Um, can you just talk through sort of the life cycle of that article? Yeah, it was the tipping point. It was the singular tipping point. Um, that article was? That article, yeah, absolutely. So the story was commissioned by Phil Picardi, who was the digital director at the time, and it was called Trump is Gaslighting America by a freelance writer named Lauren Duca. Mm-hmm who wrote about everything from Ariana Grande's die-high boots and high ponytail to politics. And she did an incredible job of capturing what it felt like to be in America and not on the Trump train at that time. It was a feeling that we were all being bamboozled um, and we couldn't figure out how we got here. Right. And it referred to the, like this like gaslighting effect. Yes. Yeah. That term is basically a psychological term for like when men... Uh, over time have manipulated their wives into Mm -hmm. thinking that they're crazy. Um, And so it's a term that's typically used in that context. Right. And they do it by acting like a rational thing that the woman is saying is actually a crazy thing. Yes. And this was in the midst of the fake news phenomenon. Right. Where suddenly anything that was coming out of what's thought of as more liberal media outlets was all suddenly being reframed as fake news. Right. And this story somehow pierced the zeitgeist in a way that no one really anticipated. Mm -hmm. And um, it went viral overnight. And suddenly we had people like Dan Rather sharing Teen Vogue political stories on his Facebook page. And, you know, suddenly we just became this like woke platform that is speaking truth to power. And uh, I don't think any of us predicted that story being the thing that was going to put Teen Vogue on the map in this way. Then suddenly overnight, because of this story, there's a spotlight on our work. Welcome to the show. Thank Thank you you for having us. And then we're on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah (laughs) talking about this this sort of revolution happening at Teen Vogue. It was very surreal. If if you have haters who say, what do you guys know about journalism? How do you respond? I say that Teen Vogue has uh, as much right to be at the table talking about politics as every young woman does in America right now. Absolutely. You could feel something was changing. We were catching fire in a way that was exhilarating. It was really exhilarating, I think, for the whole team. It was a team of underdogs, really young people. We were just all kind of the Motley crew at Condé Nast, the rebellious Motley crew making waves in media suddenly overnight. And it was it was pretty incredible, mostly because we knew that what we were shining a light on was this whole generation of young people who had been consistently underestimated um, and thought of and talked about like this selfie generation who doesn't care about anything but the Kardashians and how they look in their selfies, you know, and the truth is far from that. All of a sudden, Teen Vogue was turning around under Elaine's leadership. By early 2017, digital subscriptions had increased by more than 500%, and website traffic had more than doubled. Elaine's bosses asked her to present her vision for the next two years of Teen Vogue, so she got to work crafting her plan for the future of the magazine. And um, just before 
the presentation a couple of days before I was pulled into a meeting where I was informed that um, the likely outcome, regardless of what I presented in this meeting, was that Teen Vogue would cease its print publication. And, and this is how long before you're giving the meeting? This is two days. And this is also like at the peak of Teen Vogue's momentum. And I thought that the work that was coming out of Teen Vogue was really important. But at the end of the day, the magazine was going away, whether I liked it or not. And so it was a tough pill to swallow because I saw so much potential for what Teen Vogue could continue to mean in the world. I saw it that way. But um, of course, the company you know, didn't at the time. And they felt like the bottom line was that, you know, it, it was a numbers game. Listen, it's a reality that many magazines have faced, and mm-hmm. especially in recent years, especially teen magazines. So it wasn't entirely a surprise. It didn't come out of nowhere, but it was a really hard reality to swallow given the moment, the incredible momentum yeah. that we had sort of created. Right. Well, so part of it, it seems to be that like you fell in love with this world of of magazines mm-hmm. and sort of like, we're like, that's where I want to get to. And we're like, sort of like working your way there, got your way to the top, to this like moment of sort of like really amazing influence in this world that you love yeah. at the very moment that that world is basically sort of collapsing. Well said. Is that how it felt? That's exactly how it felt. <laughs> the print edition of Teen Vogue was done. Condé Nast offered Elaine a different role in the organization. But that dream job that Elaine had worked for years to achieve, editor-in-chief of a magazine, is going away. So she had a decision to make. What was the pro and con? Like, describe the debate in your head about, like, should I, should I stay at Condé? Should I do something else? What, what, what? It was the known and the unknown. Um, and for so long, my identity had been a magazine editor. And it was a hard thing to trust and believe that I could create more things that added more value into the world. So I think the battle in my mind was like, do I stay in the Condé Castle, this place that I had worked so long to get into, um, but under the circumstances of feeling not totally clear about why I'm still there, like my why was very much rooted in Teen Vogue. Uh, And so to have my why taken away It was a hard thing to walk away from, but it was a harder thing to stay in. I think that's what I ultimately realized. Um, I wanted to be the kind of person who was always filled with passion and purpose. And and for me, that was outside of the Condé walls. Um, I just had to make the leap. These days, you could say Elaine is mid-leap. She's trying to build her own empire of sorts, branching into other forms of media. She wrote an episode of Grownish starring Yara Shahidi, who had once been on the cover of Teen Vogue. And Elaine recently joined the reality TV show Project Runway as a judge. How's the leap been? What? Never looked back. <laughs> Never looked back. Have you back. ever once thought, man, I should have stayed a condom? Not for a second. <laughs> Not even a millisecond. <laughs> nope. <sighs> and that's how I know it was my it was time. It was time. There's one other thing Elaine has done since leaving Kanye asked. She wrote a book about the whole experience. It's called More Than Enough, claiming space for who you are, no matter what they say. It's in stores now. 
Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hiba El Arbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, follow us. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.